Morning, everyone, again. My name is Pastor Scott. Today we launch this new series, The Way Forward, the Book of Romans, and we'll be studying uh, week by week, chapter by chapter, all the way up until Advent, start of Christmas season. We'll take a break. We'll be studying Isaiah during Advent, and then we will finish Romans week by week, chapter by chapter, by Easter. So you can read along with us if you so desire. Uh, each week, next week will be chapter two, you get it. Today's a family service, so we're going to teach a little bit shorter and a little bit more visually and a little bit of a higher level. Uh, next week we'll get deeper into the Greek meaning of this and that, but very excited about looking at the way forward as we study the book of Romans. Will you pray with me and we'll begin. Lord Jesus, thank you so much for this church and for its witness for eight years in North King County. Uh, for the greater church for over a hundred years. Lord, we just thank you for what you're doing in the whole world. We hear reports of the gospel spreading in Asia and Africa, and we just give you the glory for that. And God, we, we hunger for that same, that same expansion in this region. The people in this region will know the church matters because you matter. And so, Lord God, we come to your text this morning hungry for more revelation. Open up this passage. Teach us the way forward. Help us learn about you now. In your name we pray, amen. Your message title today is called Reframe the Image. Reframe the Image. Turn to a neighbor and tell him you got to reframe it. Just look him in and tell him you got to reframe it. You got to reframe it. So I was at a wedding yesterday, family wedding out on Whidbey Island. We had a great time and, and uh, weddings kind of remind you of all that's kind of sacred and, and you know, the people that you love gathered with family. And it reminded me of uh, when Heather and I were married, one of the things we did was we had these engagement photos. So we, we got dressed up, we went to the studio, took photos, and, you know, sometime later they called us back because they had printed the pictures 20 years ago, printed the pictures, and they were going to show them to us. And we, we, we looked through them, and there was a particular image we loved. There was a particular image that we just like, that's the one. We love it. We'll put it in our wedding announcement. We'll, we'll hang a, a nice five by seven in our, in our hall of fame that, you know, someday maybe we'll have kids and that's the image that we really want to remember this time and place. And then we met with the salesman for the photography studio and he said, well, tell me more about the image that you love. We love it, I said. And we'd just like, you know, something simple like a five by seven. Let's not get carried away. Maybe an eight by ten. He said, that's not how you love an image. No, you need it bigger. You need it much bigger. He took us in this large, expansive room, and he held up an 8 by 10 photo, what felt like, you know, a quarter mile away. It's like, you can't even see it, can you? And I'm like, no, we couldn't see the image. He said, it's got to be bigger. And we walked out of the studio that day, owners of this monstrosity. Now, I love the image. The problem was, it's too big. We got this thing to our house, and we're like, what do you do with it? Put it in the guest room? That's just creepy. <laughs> Put it in our room? People think you're a narcissist. Put it in the living room? Like, hey, welcome to our house. That's us. You know, and literally now, almost 20 years later, 20 years in May, almost 20 years later, this picture that we loved has never been part of our family story. It, it hasn't. I think for a while, because I'm like one of these guys, like, we bought it, let's get value. We hung it in some, you know, random hall when we were first married, and we're like, this is just weird, you know? And so we've got like 16 square feet of awesomeness, but the image was distorted. It was. And we hold on to it because I don't know what to do with it. I bought it, but it has no value to our family. And then I pull it up, I ask the kids, any of you want it in our room? Like, no, no, we don't. So now it's just a reminder that we can love the image, but because of the way things get framed or sold to us or shaped, 
we can miss the best part of the image. Today's message is called Reframe the Image. And today we are going to take a very high level and fairly quick look at Romans 1. As I've talked to congregants, some of them say, oh, I love Romans. And then they think, but good luck teaching Romans. The context of Romans is about the image of God that's so big and so powerful and so joyous and so wonderful, Paul's saying, it has the power to reframe your life. Reframe it. And so the message title of reframe, reframe, got to reframe it, is we are looking at Romans to reframe the gospel, the gospel story that has been distorted. Because for a lot of us, the disunity in our culture, the disunity in our church, the hurt over this last week, what's happening in Washington, D.C., we're feeling it in our bodies. And we're wondering, like, how is the joy and power and passion of the gospel, you know, how does it matter now? How does that unify us now? And I want to say it'll matter now more than ever before. Because the history of this book was about reframing the power of the gospel. And it had the ability to take a very divided church in ancient Rome of of Jewish Christians and Gentile Christians and align on the beautiful image of Christ. And I'm going to say this, that for a lot of us, because our frame of God is distorted, it, it really is hard for us to see ourselves properly. When we get a proper view of God, it helps us get a proper view of ourselves as subjects of God. So we have a short little video that I think is kind of helpful to kind of uh, set up infographic style about why Romans matters, what Paul was doing. We're just going to show the first two minutes. This is from uh, the Bible Project. Paul's letter to the Romans. It's one of the longest and most significant things ever written by the man who was formerly known as Saul of Tarsus. He was a Jewish rabbi belonging to a group known as the Pharisees, and he was passionate and devout to the Torah of Moses and the traditions of Israel. And he saw Jesus and his followers as a threat. But then he had a radical encounter with the risen Jesus, who commissioned him as an apostle, like an official representative, to the world of non-Jewish people called Gentiles in the Bible. And so he started going by his Roman name, Paul, and he traveled all around the ancient Roman Empire telling people about the risen King Jesus and forming his followers then into these new communities called churches. And Paul would occasionally write letters to these new Jesus communities to help them foster their faith or answer questions. And the book of Romans is one of these. It was actually written quite late in his career. Now, we know from the book of Acts that the church in Rome had existed for some time, that it was made up of Jewish and non-Jewish followers of Jesus. But at one point, the Roman emperor Claudius had expelled all of the Jewish people from Rome. And then about five years later, all of those Jews, including Jesus-following Jews, were allowed to return. And when they did, they found a church that had become very non-Jewish in custom and practice. And so this created lots of tension, so that by Paul's day, the Roman church was divided. People disagreed about how to follow Jesus. They were debating about whether non-Jewish Christians should celebrate the Sabbath or eat kosher or be circumcised. And so Paul wrote this letter to accomplish a few things. He wanted this divided church to become unified and for a practical purpose. He was hoping that the Roman church could become a staging ground for his mission to go even further west all the way to Spain. And so these circumstances are what motivated Paul to write out his fullest explanation of the gospel, the good news that he was announcing about Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. That's kind of cool. That's why Romans matters, because it helped unified, a very disunified church, 
in Rome for a further mission. Some see this and say, well, what, what's our mission today? Our, our mission today is for help a non-believing world know that God is for them and that life in faith can transform their lives. And so when we reframe the gospel and let the truth of the gospel speak through the pages of Romans, we believe the church gets its authentic witness back. And this is where our unity comes from. Now what's interesting, the video just said, Paul wrote the letter rather late in his career, about 55 or 56 or 57 AD, but decades before the gospels were written. The early church spread the word of Jesus, which they called the way, just verbally telling Jesus stories. Hey, Jesus, he did this, he did this, he did, and they would hear eyewitness reports. But Paul would start to write letters to these Jesus communities to say, this is why our behavior matters coming out of a unity in Christ. So when Paul's writing this letter, he's preparing the church in Rome to be unified around their main thing, to get ready for a future mission. This is really, really, really important. Romans is the longest letter of Paul, and it's the most clear articulation of what is the gospel. In the ancient world, gospel in Greek meant good news, but it also meant, and what it really meant was anything the emperor said was the euangelion, the gospel of whatever the emperor's name is. And Paul is saying, we have a new king. We have a new gospel to live by. And if we live by this, Paul's saying, we get our power back. We get the image of God back. And so Paul speaks to the pages of Romans to say, let's reframe the, the, the pursuit of Christ. It's not about religion. It's about relationship with him. And so the, our big idea is simply this, that Romans will reframe the gospel for us as truly good news to live our lives by that affects you and me and us. Very simple this morning. We're going to keep it at a high level and dig in deeper next week when we have kids in, in, in their own classrooms. Let's look at the beginning. You, you're the subject of this letter. Look at verse 7. The subject of Romans 1 is kind of an important foundational step. You need to find yourself in this story. Yes, this was written 2,000 years ago to a disjointed 13 synagogue church in Rome. And Paul wants you to know that you matter today in this story. To all in Rome who are loved by God and called to be his holy people, pause. Paul's saying to anyone who wants to pursue Christ, you are loved and you are holy. You are loved and you are holy. And that's where you might be like, pump the brakes. Maybe loved, I can work. But holy, no, 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 no. None of us. Holy, I don't think so. Paul uses the word saint in the book of Romans 38 times because what he wants that early church to know is that their status did not depend on their behavior, but God's character. And we've given you that fill in the blank because it's such an important call out. In Romans 1, Paul's saying you are holy and you are loved. Your status does not depend on your behavior. Yes, behavior flows out of this new status, this new image of God of saying this is what we're going to be about. But where we begin is that our status does not depend on our behavior, but on God's character. This is the gospel that all of us, fallen because of sin, it's, we can't strive our way to, to meet with Jesus. No, Jesus has redeemed us wholly by his blood shed on the cross for us sinful people. So it's like, oh yeah, I think I remember that before. And yet if I've been around the church for a while, I get into this pursuit mentality that somehow it's my pursuit of Christ that will create a different status for me. 
We'll get, the, we'll get downstream of this in weeks to follow. But as a starting point, Paul's saying, you are loved and you are holy. Know that your status flows from God's character, not your effort. This is John 3.16. Maybe you've heard it. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. And if you look at the first four words of this verse, it's all these, like the whole meaning is the first four words. For God so loved. Everything is response to that. That, that our, our salvation, our, our, our recognition of our brokenness, our redemption, for the spirit of God living fully in us once we enter this, all of it flows from the first four words. Tell me you see it. Tell me you can see these. For God so loved. Paul is saying to the church, there are many issues to divide about. And I'm telling you, Romans 13, 14, 15, there's so much that's so applicable to us today. But where we begin is this foundation. The find yourself in the story that God so loved you, that the gospel is about this great love. The gospel of Jesus Christ, the image of God that was given in us and through us is a, is a gospel of addition and not subtraction. This was the gospel. And Paul's saying later in Romans 1, he's saying anything that you start to, to behave, to, to numb this image of God, you become enslaved to. He's saying, no, don't become enslaved. Learn to enjoy this new status. And when you do, of course it will change your pursuits. Of course it will change the way that you do relationships and sexuality and the way you do money and the way that you do worship. All of these will come. But Paul says our status to begin with is know that we belong to one who loves us. We're, we're called to live into this new freedom. And I loved in worship this morning the call out of freedom. Because, man, we, there's such a slavery to, to fear right now in our culture and to anxiety and to pain. And at a high level, adults, you've seen it played out nationally this week. Holy moly. We talk about secondary trauma and people be, revisit. I mean, what a painful week. And, Paul, and Paul's saying, but in Christ, there's freedom. And in, it, the, the old story is gone, the new story has come. Look at the old story. Jeremiah 11, we could call out any of the Old Testament passages. We were saved into a covenant relationship, but obedience mattered. Jeremiah 11, the prophet Jeremiah says, Obey me and do everything I command you. Everything. We're like, whoa. And you will be my people, and I'll be your God. And then I'll fulfill the oath I swore to your ancestors and give them to a land flowing with milk and honey, the land you possess today, I answered. Amen, Lord. That's the old story. Now, it's covenant relationship. Even Israel didn't earn their way into the family, but it's definitely dependent on maintaining behavior. The new story, because of who Christ is and the gospel of his death and resurrection for us, comes from Galatians 4. Formerly, you did not know God. You were slaves to those by nature are not gods. Anything we worship other than the image of God, it becomes a God to us. But now that you know God, and I love this call out, Paul says, or rather are known by God, how is it that you're turning back to those weak and miserable forces again? Do you wish to be enslaved by them all over again? This is the Romans way. This is the way back to reframe the story. That's why it matters. The gospel helps us see God as a loving father and a creator of all, to see ourselves made in his image that has radical implications for how we live. We belong to one who loves us. There was this game in college. I played college football. I was fifth deep on the, on the bench, and I wasn't on the field. We were playing the big bullies in the league, Central Washington University. 
I've told this story before, but it's been some time, and it's a little bit of a humble break, so let me have it. So, you know, it's homecoming in Ellensburg, and you all know what a big deal that is. There's 5,000 people there, and from Whitworth College, maybe 250 people. They had beaten us 22 years straight. I mean, their DBs and safeties were bigger than our offensive. We were scared. I mean, these were men. We were boys. And we were on the 10-yard line trying not to just get smashed into our own end zone. We had 90 yards to go. It's late in the game. The quarterback, I'm even in the game because other guys have got concussion, hamstring. And I'm like, are you kidding? Now I'm on the field, scared. Quarterback calls an audible. Son goes out. Here comes the ball. Catch the ball. Now the two fastest guys in the conference are getting ready to tackle me. I'm running for my life. This isn't joy. This is just fear. <laughs> and I'm like seeing like the horse collar and the broken ankles. and all. But this miracle happens. Fastest boy one versus fastest boy two. They both dive at the perfectly same time and knock each other down. And I go running into the end zone. I'm like, can you believe this? Like... We beat them the first time in 22 years. An offensive lineman on my team, he's running down the field. He's literally crying. His name is Cooter. And like, he's like holding me. I'm like, I love you, man. You know? And in that moment, like, are, we had only like a couple hundred people, but you know, like all the joy, all the feels, all the goodness. And I look up, and, and, and even though there's all these people in the stands, I could see my dad. And I'm like, you know, Cooter's holding me. I got my hand up, and I'm looking for my father. And my father looks down, and he raises his hand too. And I'm telling you, it's a moment. Like, here's the thing. This story doesn't matter because my relationship with my father is that incredible. It was a moment in my life of validation to my father. He loves the sport. A lot of us, when we're young, we're playing the sport for the validation of someone in our family, right? My father loved the sport. In that moment, I felt acceptance and joy and peace but i'm telling you friends like you play for a much bigger god and it doesn't matter if you haven't been stacking up the victories late this isn't a touchdown story it's the father who loves you story who who has redeemed you the image of god given to you his very breath in your lungs we're helping through romans reframe that image the story matters because your father is radically for you that's the story of you, the story of me. And I don't have a lot of time with this, but just if you look at Paul in verses 1 through 6, Paul really sets up the whole gospel of, of the good news of Romans by telling his story briefly. He says, Paul, you know, like this was my story. And you saw the video. Paul says, I was a slave to, to a religious pursuit. That was my false idol. That was my false freedom. But now that Jesus has encountered me, like I, I'm, in, I'm in a new story and I'm a person set apart. And Paul's going to go on at the end of chapter 1, really from verse 18 on, to say there's all sorts of repercussions when you live with a different image in the frame. It, when a broken sexuality, a broken picture of wholeness, a broken, you're trying to please somebody in your life, there's somebody in the stands that you didn't get validation, there's an old pain in the frame. Paul's like, whatever it is, anything other than the freedom of God that's in your frame, you're being reframed by the wrong narrative. And so Paul is saying, be cautious that your story isn't one of freedom, or that it is one of freedom, rather, that you're not trading in the, the freedom of God for a false God. And there's one key phrase. We're not going to call out a lot of Romans 1 this morning. We're keeping it very high level. We'll talk more in weeks ahead as we dig deeper into the text. But there's one phrase in verse 24, 26, 28. God gave them up. 
that God allowed us to pursue when we allow something else to be the center of our pursuit, that at time God says, all right, go ahead and make that thing your God and see if you feel freedom or slavery. And so over and over again in the end of Romans 1, 18 through the end, there's this just catalog of the ways that we trade in worship of God for little g-gods, ways that we fall away from uh, God and enter sin, where it says here there's a call out that in like verse 31, there's no understanding, there's no fidelity, there's no love, there's no mercy. And so as people of God, we're trying to step into places of justice and mercy and saying, God, I, I want something else to, to, to frame me. I want to experience your freedom. I don't want to be a slave any longer. And we can get discouraged. But remember the words of Jude. Jude 1, 24, to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and present you before his glorious presence without fault and joy, it's God's work in us. To the, to the only God our Savior be glory, majesty, power, and authority through Jesus Christ our Lord before all ages, now and forevermore. And we've heard that as a benediction, but when you study this verse of Jude, it's like, oh yeah, it's him who is able to keep me. It is him who's able to keep me unenslaved. And so the work of Romans is to help us see God again, help us see ourselves again, that we have an advocate, one who goes with us. Pastor Ruth said in a message six weeks ago, and it stayed with me, she said, you know, that the story of God is one of love and truth. And sometimes there's this new narrative that, you know, if you just love people, just kind of let them do whatever they want. That's love. And Ruth said, well, that's not actually what love is. Love is a, is a mix of, of love and truth. If you have a child studying math, struggling with math, to say, I love you, no matter how you do, good luck, and the child is feeling frustrated or unhelped, it's not actually very loving. She said that, and I said, I had that happen this week. One of my kids is in a class that feels over his head a bit because it's an advanced class. He was, you know, it's like it was a hard time, crying and worried and whatever. And I said, let's go get you help. I don't know how to do that. Let's go to school early. The teacher was willing to meet. We pull up to the school. It's 7 o'clock. School doesn't start for 45 minutes. And he looks at me, and he's like, will you go with me? This feels weird to walk into my new school by myself. I'm like, I will go with you. So we get to the edge of the classroom, and he's like, I got it from here, Dad, because you know, no one wants to walk with your dad into a junior high class. And I'm like, you know, A, I was, no one else was there. But I'm like, I said, you, you don't have to go alone. So I went with him, met the teacher, helped explain the situation because he was feeling all this fear. He came back today, or th that day, like visibly lighter because he got the help he needed. So real love is grace and truth and saying to the people we love that the image of God needs to be reframed in you. And this is where the freedom comes from. This is where the help comes from. And this gives us a new story. This is the third point in your outline. This gives us a new story. We don't have to be ashamed of the Jesus story when we're pursuing the main thing as the main thing. Look at verse 16 and 17. I'm going to read to you the message paraphrase of it. Uh, in the message paraphrase of verse 16 and 17, that we're not ashamed of the gospel, the gospel's news, I'm most proud to proclaim this extraordinary message of God's powerful plan to rescue everyone who trusts him, starting with Jews and then right on to everyone else. God's way of putting people right shows up in the acts of faith, confirming what scripture has said all along, the person in right standing before God by trusting him really lives. Well, who in the world is the person in right standing before God? It's you. And this is our story. Because of Jesus' work on the cross, the gospel stories, I've been put in right standing before God, and now I get to live into that. And we'll talk downstream in the weeks ahead of how do I live into a pursuit where God is the image in my life and I'm not seeking other gods? How do we do it? I love where that call out is that that's where real life is. The gospel of righteousness, if God is revealed, it brings real life. 
the gospel brings joy and peace and freedom and a pursuit of Christ that says love and truth going together to bring less fear and more of God's power in my life. I was at this wedding on Whidbey Island and everybody knows once the wedding is over and then it's the food, the best part of the wedding is the dancing. Little known fact, you may, Pastor Scott actually won a dad dance competition at one point. I busted this move out. I'm not going to bust out right now. I don't even want to do that. But I tell you, last night we're dancing like crazy. And this woman, this older woman grabs me and she said, you know, I know you're a pastor. It's not a sin to dance, right? She's breathing on my face. I'm like... No, but my personal space has been invited, and now that feels like a sin. But we <laughs> kept dancing, you know, and it's like, yeah, this is the gospel. The joy, the peace, the power. Verse 11, there's power. Paul says, I want you to, we'll mute, verse 12, we'll mutually encourage each other. It's all of this. What makes you dance? May Jesus be the source of your joy and peace and power. And as we seek Romans, like, okay, give us some of this truth from Romans. Give us some of this grace and truth going together. We're helping reframe the image. And so what we're going to do today to make this kind of participatory is I gave you these very high quality picture frames. And there's crayons on the side for little ones. There's Sharpies on the side or down front. If you didn't get a frame, there's some frames on these tables as well. I'm going to call the worship team forward. And just in response, I want you to reframe the image. I said at the front beginning that, that often when we have the wrong image of God, we have a wrong identity of ourselves. And a lot of our sinful pursuits, see verse 18 on, are from a broken image of God. We've stopped worshiping him. We don't know where our standing comes from. And so this morning, we want to reframe the image. We want you to take one of these frames and we're going to just sit during the first song and just write words that God would say over you. That, that this might be a blessing in your family, with your roommates, for yourself. You're not going to turn this in anywhere. This is for your Bible or for your fridge. We passed this around in the first service of my kids. What does Jesus say about you? My son is six. He said, I think he said, he loves me. Okay, what words does God want to speak over you this morning? You're free. You're loved. You're created. You're beautiful. You're hopeful. You're good. You're welcome. You're joyful. You're a child of his. You're beloved. You're in his family. You're glad. You're wanted. You're prized. You're treasured. You're valued. You're esteemed. You're adored. Write some of these words that maybe feel foreign to you right now, that God wants to speak over you. And, and our hope here is we study Romans, the way forward is redeeming and reframing the image of God. And that when we do, we're going to see ourselves different, able at, to, to freely pursue him. So let me pray over you now, and we'll, we'll do this activity as we close in song. Lord Jesus, thank you for this church. Thank you for the little ones in the room. Thank you that this church belongs to them. God, may their faith in you grow. May seeds be planted. In their life, for the littlest ones, they matter the most here. God, may, may their faith in you grow. We pray for people at every age and every stage, every skin color, everything they've been through. Lord God, would you reframe your image in them? What words now, God, are you speaking over them? Is your spirit falling over them and into them to encourage them? There's a false narrative that's keeping them enslaved in, in downstream pursuits of something else. Lord God, we want to return to you this morning. And so may they hear your words speaking over them around this frame of their life in order to free them up to worship you more fully. God, all of this is for you. It's all for you. 
We're hearing you this morning. We're loving you this morning. All of it's in response to what you've already spoken over us. Thank you so much, God, for the love that you showered upon us, calling us loved and holy. And all God's people said, amen. So just take a moment here as we sing Sharpies, front, side, grab a frame. This might be something as a family you would do. What words might be God speaking over your family or in a relationship? Or like it's, maybe it's just you and Jesus, and then you take this home with you as a reminder. We're reframing the image this morning.